Today on Digital Health 101, we're going to be talking about patient engagement platforms. One of the first patient engagement platforms to really take hold, HealthLoop. It's now called Get Well Loop. HealthLoop was started by one of my good friends, Todd Johnson. He was a CEO. And he's since left that company and works for Avia Health, a consultancy. But he has a tremendous understanding and experience in the space. Still very engaged in it. And I thought he'd be a terrific person to walk us through. What is patient engagement? What platforms exist? How do they work? And what does it see as a future for these platforms? Listen to our conversation. It was really fun. Todd Johnson, so excited to have you as part of our inaugural podcast of Digital Health 101. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm super stoked because you have been amongst the very first pioneers to get into the whole patient engagement platforms, almost defining the space. You really guys were at the very beginning of this idea that we could maybe connect with patients on a continuous basis. I want to talk about that with you for a little bit. But before that, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. First and foremost, an entrepreneur. I've been the chief executive officer of two healthcare IT companies. I recently joined, I sold one of those companies, a patient engagement platform, which I'm sure we'll spend plenty of time talking about, um, about two years ago, left that business over the summer. And now I'm a consultant at a firm called Avia, which is a firm that specializes in understanding sort of due diligence on digital health companies. So understanding what works and what doesn't work and working with health system members across the country to adopt these technologies. And you get to do that from beautiful golden Colorado, right? It's a great place to be. You know, I was in Silicon Valley for many years, but my family and I moved here about a year and a half ago. And it's awfully nice. We're in the foothills of the Rockies, and it's a good place to be during a quarantine. Right. And Golden, where'd that come from? So Golden was actually the first capital of Colorado. It's an old gold mining town. So there, there's a lot of mining here, but now it's more known as the home of Coors Brewing. So you can get a Golden beer. A golden beer. Makes sense. Well, awesome. And you, you got two young kids you're raising out in Colorado. I can't imagine they're so lucky, so lucky, so lucky. Yeah. The fact that they can get, hit the slopes on any given weekend is pretty amazing. I'm a little jealous. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you make me a little jealous of your kids now. All right, man. So patient engagement platforms, let's, let's define that term to begin with. Yeah. So, you know, I think if you think about medicine in its modern form in the United States, it's it's generally very transactional, right? We schedule time with our doctor. They often need some data, so they'll do some diagnostics to understand what's wrong with us or a physical exam, and then they're going to recommend a treatment course. And sometimes that's surgery, sometimes it's medicine, sometimes it's exercise. Um, but generally, once you've left the doctor's office, it's just assumed that you're doing your part as a patient and everything's doing fine, unless you as the patient raise your hand and get back in to see your physician. And so the sort of the simple concept of patient engagement is how can we both make this experience more continuous? So it's not just the time we're in with our doctor, but if the doctor was sort of with you every step of the way, guiding you, educating you, encouraging you, and keeping track of how you're doing so that if we saw that something wasn't going just right, the physician's team could be notified. So patient engagement platforms are the digital enablement of this kind of continuous experience designed to um, keep patients on track and identify exceptions. Where did the this concept gets started. Was there a predicate in some other industry or even gaming that got us to this point where you say, hey, we could apply this to healthcare? You know, for me, where I saw it was actually working with a medical group that had a different model. 
So this is a medical group that sells a premium product. It's a high-touch concierge practice whose patients expect continuous availability and treatment. And so when you look at that kind of a model, you know, it would be wonderful if every patient in America could get that kind of model, but it's an extremely heavy lift from a service perspective that, you know, physicians just can't generally afford to do. So the challenge was how could we use technology to scale this type of very high touch continuous model using digital? And when you look at digital, what kind of tools within the digital armamentarium do you need to use to to create this sort of maybe start where you started and where you, where you are now or where yeah. you are now? I think there's a couple different layers. So the first layer, let's call it the hook, right? So what is the thing that's going to initiate a patient to participate? And there's some general things that are really simple, email, text notification, automated phone calls, or even, you know, in-person phone calls. So there's a notification layer that needs to be present and effective. And there's different channels that work for different communities that work for different clinical conditions. You have to be culturally sensitive. Then there's sort of the, let's call it the data delivery, the education delivery and the data collection layer. Typically, these are all happening in, you know, apps, uh, mobile websites, et cetera. You do see some IVR, which is the automated kind of phone tree collection. You see some of them collecting data, you know, from a text back and forth, like press one if X, press two if X. But generally, these are sort of interactive apps. And then there's a whole enterprise side on the clinical side of this, which is, okay, how do we then integrate these new exceptions into our workflow? And how do we make that work with our medical record and a whole big body of work around? So let's go there for a second, because let's just say that we're in a system that has elected to integrate or or bring on a a platform like this. It's not a matter of just pushing a button, right? There's a fair amount of, uh, like I said, heavy lift involved within the integration side into the EMR, electronic health record that, that the clinic is using. And then there's a cultural change that has to happen at the level of the clinic. So let's start first with the technology side. What is required to for a successful integration? Yeah, so I think the gold standard here is, you know, we're asking our nurses, our medical assistants, our doctors to operate within an electronic medical record all day long. And it is really hard to introduce another tool, right? And so the gold standard here is in whatever queue, if it's Epic's in-basket or Cerner's message queue, whatever queue the clinical team is used to working in, that's where they're learning about what's happening to their patients. And that from that queue, they can take the necessary actions to respond. It's non-trivial to do that, but that is the gold standard. And I think that's what clinicians deserve. Do you think they're getting that? Deserve and getting it is not exactly the same thing. I think it's variable and there's a lot of moving pieces to this. So the first is the electronic medical record vendors um, don't necessarily have the tool set to enable perfect integration. In some cases, they're working towards it, but let's be fair to them. You know, I don't think their first mission was to figure out how to create a platform by which third-party capabilities can just effortlessly plug in. You know, they had to figure out how to make the lab system work and the billing system work. So I don't think we should be too critical on that front. Many of them have seen the market opportunity that by creating the the platform by which third-party tools can integrate, that they will win. In other words, they will be able to better serve their customers by allowing innovation to happen, not just from their own companies, but from others. And so that's, that's softening and getting better. There are new regulatory moves that are sort of increasingly making this type of gold standard interoperability easier and better but it's a long game. And so it's going to just take some time. 
I will say on the segment of patient engagement platforms, some of the large electronic medical record vendors have either acquired companies to begin to have this capability sort of natively built in or are building it themselves. And, and that's, I think, encouraging for the space at large. So let's get back to the patient side and the clinical side. So going from the challenges that you just elucidated and also point out are getting easier relative to the integration piece and the, now let's talk about the socialization piece. You did that across, I think, 70 different healthcare systems in your previous job very successfully, very quickly. COVID really drove a lot of adoption. What challenges, or more importantly, what opportunities do you see when people deploy these technologies to ensure that the implementation of the level of the staff and the faculty of the doctors is successful, that they use it and use it well? Yeah, well, I think you hit on it a little bit earlier. Culture matters here. You know, in, in behavior change is hard. So in the typical medical clinic, people are really busy, right? And it's an all day, every day, continuous processing of, of information and, and delivering service. And so if a medical group is not used to thinking about service in this new model, where we're going to have a continuous and proactive surveillance of patients, okay, that's thing one. Like we have to have understanding that this is an aspirational outcome that is good. Secondly, and I think that's beholden on the companies in this space is to deliver real meaningful outcomes. Oftentimes, those outcomes are in clinical outcomes, better clinical outcomes for patients. Sometimes they have to do with the patient's experience or perception of their experience. And sometimes those outcomes are on time savings for staff. So a group has to be ready, willing, and able to jump in and has to be willing to exert the kind of leadership it requires to think differently about patient care. So important. And then when you get into brass tacks, I think that there's, it should not be uh, sort of underrepresented how difficult it can be to do these little shifts in behavior. You know, for instance, if I'm used to using the telephone and reacting to patients calling, well, as a medical group, why don't we kind of slow that channel down and now push our patients into this asynchronous communication? And once you get enough critical mass, you can start to feel a bit of a flywheel of efficiency. Now, not every team feels that it can be variable. Alongside of all the cultural and behavioral issues, which I do think are served by continuous review of um, clinical impact and really believing that is, you know, the IT integration issues. And so, you know, I think every company would like to tell every health system purchaser that integration is easy and they can do all the heavy lifting. And the truth is, it's never as simple as we want it to be. So I love this idea of how you're encouraging this mindset of continuous care. And that is different from occasional care, or I should say the, the deterministic care that's given on a specific schedule, because you are asking the patients to not only participate in an engagement, but also deliver information back to the practice and the practice has to respond to it because otherwise that connection doesn't happen. However, there are ways around that, right? You can automate some of these answers and the questions can be binary or at least Boolean in their construct. How much engagement were you seeing when you were deploying these technologies in terms of how often patients respond? Yeah, so the answer is it's variable. So when you look at patient participation, I think there's a couple different variables that are worth considering. In the early days, it was sort of always assumed that older patients wouldn't use these platforms. I think that is a false belief. In fact, older patients are just as likely, if not more likely, than younger patients to participate. Why? Mortality may be sooner. 
issues may be more severe, right? And so they have intrinsic motivation to participate. And that's factor number one is intrinsic motivation. If I have a tremendous amount of hip pain and I'm going to see an orthopedic surgeon to resolve that, I want to get better and I want to get out of the health system quicker and I want to do what I can, right, to help that happen as fast as possible. So I'm I'm intrinsically motivated. If, however, I've been managing, you know, type two diabetes for years. I don't really want anyone to tell me to change my diet or my habits. An app isn't necessarily going to be the the magic bullet that's going to solve that. Now it can help. And the second factor I think is actually more powerful than the intrinsic motivation for the patient, which is the clinical team's engagement. When physicians and their nurses and their teams use these engagement platforms and shift it to be a primary way to communicate with patients, patients will use it. And so the magic is in really pulling on both of those levers to get great participation. You know, uh, I've actually published on some of this and specifically using the platform you guys have developed. And we were, with respect to this question of returning, once patients got engaged with the platform, they realized they could get an answer in an hour and a half, as opposed to a day and a half sometimes on our, on our phone system, because it was such a high volume practice. And then the general experience or the way they described their experience is that I was personally engaged in their care. They actually attribute those emails that came every day, sometimes every few hours to our engagement with them. And it was specific to my practice. It wasn't a generic contact point. So I agree with completely that was our experience. And the value proposition to patients is simply, okay, it's hard to estimate, but people really do like it. They, I suspect, I don't know for sure, they probably referred people to us because of that experience. So, but this is the acute care. And so you're saying that maybe the acute care paradigm is more intrinsically appropriate for patient engagement platforms than some of the most more chronic disease management things? No, but I think different approaches are warranted. So if you look at a traditional chronic disease management program, you know, look at the worst of the worst, which were health insurance companies with disease management programs where you get like a nurse calling you once a quarter trying to keep Mm. you on healthy habits. Well, first of all, there's not a lot of trust, right? I don't really trust my health insurance company. Why is this nurse from the health insurance company calling me? So those traditionally had like 8% or lower participation rates, pretty bad. You've got then different models in a typical health system that may be deployed by the primary care physicians. Well, look, primary care is really, really busy, right? And their ability to lean in, be you know, proactive and continuous with this um, panel of patients becomes hard. Then you've got you know, more condition-specific programs. And this is where I think you can start to get towards the sweet spot right? So you've got a heart failure program, a diabetes management program, a COPD management program with, and here's the catch, wonderful personnel, wonderful personnel who genuinely want to nurture and improve the outcomes of their patients. And those wonderful personnel, when they lean in on these engagement platforms with those individuals, great things can happen. So great perspective that it's, again, not just the technology here. It's the culture of the environment that they put into that determines their success. I'll give you a great example. We worked with two different academic medical centers, uh, both amazing, right? Great reputation, uh, both in their diabetes care management program. 
One was kind of reactive and not all in on um, using tech, and they had about 30% of their patients participate and meaningfully engage. Another academic medical center just had the world's best diabetes educator. She was just the most empathetic, thoughtful, and courageous leader. And they had about 92%, 92% of their patients participating routinely using the platform. Why? Well, it starts with this human connection. It starts with trust. And then it is, is reinforced when this platform becomes a valuable tool for me and my team to manage my health. And so, you know, there's a lot to learn from those examples and others, but it, it I think, reinforces that it's not technology alone and it's not people alone. It's the power of putting the two together. Love that message. All right. So this is where we are today. And going forward, what's it going to look like? Look, I think, you know, you could imagine a world where the computers are both amazingly personal, right? Chatbots today, like what percentage of the customer service we're receiving online is a chatbot versus a human? I think many of us don't really know when we're interacting with electronic service online. Technology can do a lot here. Technology can do a lot to keep patients on track, to provide the right information at the right time and try to collect data. The model I have in my mind, if you'll just entertain me for a minute, (laughs) the primary care physician of the future, in my mind, when she walks into her office at 8 a.m. in the morning, she's got a cup of coffee, a medical journal, and has time to get smart on the latest innovation in medicine. And she can confidently sit there knowing that the technology is managing all the low acuity issues, keeping all the patients on track. And when she's required is when there's a change, right? Patient X blips today. And she could take an hour to lean in with that patient and understand what's going on, use her skills, her training, her knowledge to determine a new treatment plan and shift course for the patient. And, you know, I don't know what percentage of in a primary care physician office of the tasks right, could be managed asynchronously, but I think it's a chunk. And I think that we could really transform medicine to be incredibly sort of population and exception-based and let the technology be that front edge of all the communication, all the service, all the logistics, all the things, except for the medical decision-making and the determination with the patient on what the right course of action is. That may be ideal, but that's the vision in my brain. Todd, that vision you gave us just now, it sounds so futuristic. At the same time, there are other parts of our lives where we're perfectly accepting of technology driving and making decisions. Most of us may not realize that a lot of the airplanes we fly in are largely flown by computer most of the time and not a a clinician slash pilot until the very end when the most crucial elements of the decision making need to happen. And so this idea of having a, the low acuity stuff managed by a trusted source, I mean, I think from my end as a patient, if I were interfacing with a software that over and over again was correct, over and over again gave me what I needed, which could be an appointment, it could be a refill on a medication, it could be to relay the uh, discharge summary, my last clinic note, and write it back to me, and then put me in touch with the doctor when I needed them. After a while, I'd sort of trust that interface, just like you do with Alexa today, and use it. Yeah, I mean, if you use the airplane analogy, right, the air traffic controller, imagine we had one person and it was their job to call and have a quick phone call with every pilot right before takeoff and right as they landed, had no visibility (laughs) what was happening in between. Right. It just doesn't work. And so, you know, I think that there's a profoundly more scalable and effective model. And imagine this, Stefano, like imagine that the technology could really profile and understood where you were. Okay. You know, 
Todd has had a respiratory issue and we gave him intervention X. He's on day six following that intervention. Well, you know what? There's another two and a half million Americans that have gone through similar circumstances. So what can we coach that patient on what others have done, right, to improve their outcomes, right? So it's just unbelievable untapped power at this collecting this data at scale and using it to, uh, you know, empower patients with better, smarter, faster information. One last thing I want to touch on before we go, which is one of the drivers or one of the things that actually tipped this into fast mode besides COVID was the change in the payment structures. So up and for a long time, the telehealth and telemedicine tools are used primarily in remote regions. They, and once the payment models changed, it allowed physicians to embrace them and be able to do so without, you know, without closing yeah. shop. Want to talk a little bit about how that happened and if you see any further changes in that space? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of two macro trends, both I think are encouraging. So first off, there are now payments that reimburse physicians for enrolling patients on these platforms and managing patients on these platforms. And those are those are great. You know, doctors can earn, you know, 100 to $250 per patient, right, of additional revenue to the practice for deploying these new capabilities. The second model that I tend to gravitate to even more is increasingly medical groups are taking on risk. And I think there are a couple of different flavors of risk-based scenarios. Some are sort of full population capitated models. The ones that I think are really encouraging have been the, the bundled episodes of care where you're looking at a capitated period where the physician, if they can manage patients really well and bring down the total cost of care over, say, 60 or 90 days, gets to pocket a portion of the savings. And I think in those situations, the upside is even greater when these technologies deliver, when they actually result in fewer emergency room visits, fewer rehospitalizations, fewer adverse events. But both are great. And I think that I hope that from a policy perspective, we continue to really, you know, let's call it subsidize the growth of these new sectors so that they can reach their full potential and, and really impact the quality and cost of the healthcare system. What advice would you give someone who's interested? Yeah. So is it a provider organization or a patient? Let's look at for a provider organization, the people who are going to be buying these technologies. What should they look for within the technology to make sure that it's going to keep up with their needs? Yeah. So I think that there's a couple of like, if I was going to do diligence on a set of companies, I would look at a couple of basic things by condition. So diabetics versus spine patients, et cetera. Uh, what percentage of patients are who we invite to use the platform actually sign up and use it? And then what percentage of them are still using it at 30, 60, 90 days, right? I think that's a really important thing. And it's easy to kind of like focus on clinical outcomes and costs, but the truth is those never get realized if patients aren't using it. The second thing that I would, you know, not every company does this, but by measuring every patient's experience on the platform is a really useful metric, right? So if I was a provider organization looking to make an investment in one of these, I'd really want to know for certain that A, my patients are going to use it and B, that they're going to really like it, right? If I knew those things to be true, then I can start to work on my own organization. You know, is it going to get the quality outcomes that we need? Does it have the right widgets for us given our EMR? And there's a whole host of things there. So those are the, the things that I would diligence. The second thing I would do is I wouldn't be casual about this. I would go for it. I would make sure that I had the necessary dollars to make you know, a real investment. 
I would power it with the personnel and empower those personnel with the free energy and space to commit to making it successful. To some degree, I think that provider organizations, um, you can get a lot out of these platforms. And believe me, study after study, I feel compelled that everybody deserves these, right? Um, right. But if you're not going to do it right, then don't do it at all because it's just a waste of, of your time. It's a waste of your patient's time. It's a waste of your money. So you have to go in with focus, determination, commitment, and courage, and you just got to do it. And you know the groups that go in with that mindset of we will not fail, I think are highly rewarded. So Todd, that was a beautiful vision. I think a terrific perspective on not just patient engagement platforms, but actually the entire spectrum of clinically related technologies. They don't work in a vacuum. They need to be embraced. They need to be engaged with, need to be understood. And then when the groups do so, when they participate and think of them as an extension of their care model, they can really gather the benefits of both for them and for the patients. With that, I think I was going to ask, can people find you on the internet? Where do you do LinkedIn? Do you do Twitter? My best social media uh, outlet would be LinkedIn. So why don't we go ahead and post my LinkedIn URL in the show notes, and I'd be happy to engage with folks on this stuff. Great. And now you're also engaging professionally, right? Because you actually, your company does just that. They help systems and hospitals figure out what the best solution is for them. Yeah. And I tell you, it's a really fun place for me to sit. Having built a couple of companies, you get so wrapped up in your own universe. Uh, but being able to see kind of the outcomes across so many companies is uh, really fun and intellectually stimulating. Awesome. Hey, Todd, thanks so much for taking time to speak to us today. My pleasure, Stefano. I appreciate it. That was great. We'll do it again because I have a feeling this is one of those topics we'll come back to again and maybe do a deeper dive at some point as some more technologies come around. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our podcast, exploring the building blocks of digital health. If you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button to hear the latest episodes as soon as they're published. We hope to see you back for the next episode of Digital Health 101 on Digital Health Today. What else is hitting your radar these days? You know, I'm doing a lot of work on health equity topics and <laughs> in specific, like understanding what digital technologies, you know, a lot of these digital technologies leave behind vulnerable, underserved, oh, right. um, black and brown communities. And so doing a, a reasonable battle research to try and dig into really like what technologies are serving the underserved communities really well. So that's occupying a lot of time. I think I'm doing a big body work on this kind of specialty care of the future that you were involved with. And I've got a 